This podcast is brought to you by Intel V Pro. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Allstate Foundation that believes good starts young. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, November 29th, the Washington Post brought together federal, state, and local policymakers, education researchers, teachers, school administrators, and advocates to discuss the changing education landscape in America. In this segment, national education leaders discuss the debates surrounding school choice, standardized testing, funding for public schools, and how to prepare students for higher education and the jobs of the future. Let's listen. Hi, thanks for being here. Um, we are here to talk about what we should be talking about. <laughs> um, first, I'll introduce the panel. We have Diane Ravitch to my left. She's a former Assistant Secretary of Education in the first Bush administration who supported No Child Left Behind until she looked at its impact on public schools. She then became the titular leader of the movement against the, um, the efforts to operate public schools like they were businesses. She's a research professor at New York University, and she's the author of many books, including the influential 2010 book, The Death, of Life, the Death and Life of the Great American School System. Robert Pondicio is a senior fellow and vice president at the conservative think tank, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Once a journalist at Time and Business Week, he became a teacher and later served as vice president of Core Knowledge, a nonprofit that provides curricular guidance and materials to schools. He is also a prolific writer and tweeter. Bridget Terry Long is dean of the Graduate School of Education at Harvard, where she previously, previously was academic dean. She is an, ec an economist whose research focuses on the impact of affordability, <laughs> academic preparation, and information on college student access and success. Now let's get to our discussion. This year's teachers' strikes, which the previous panel addressed, were a reminder that after years of what we call school reform, quote unquote, of one type or another, we still haven't solved some of the very basic problems facing the public education system, funding, equity, teacher preparation and support. So what I'd like to do is see if we can agree on this <laughs> panel on where we actually are, um, what we've learned, and perhaps if we have time where we should go after years of experimentation. Um, I'm gonna ask Diane to start. Uh, where are we? Have any of the big pro programs of the last 20 years actually improved anything? Um, well, having worked in the Federal Department of Education, and as you described, come full circle, I've come to the belief that the federal programs of the past 20 years have done more harm than good. Uh, in my view, uh, No Child Left Behind was an unmitigated disaster. Uh, it inflicted a testing culture on the schools that they have yet to recover from, and they're still stuck with it through the latest iteration of uh, the Basic Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is now called the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is actually the inverse of No Child Left Behind. No Child Left Behind equals Every Student Succeeds, pass a law and all the problems are solved. But what this law requires is that every student in grades three through eight must be tested every single year in reading and math, and there's no high-performing nation in the world that does that. It's insane. And we don't learn anything from doing this year after year. All we learn is where the poor kids are 
and then they, we close their schools. And you all heard earlier from Rahm Emanuel, who I think will go down in history, is the one person in world history who closed 50 schools in a single day, which was uh, a terrible dislocation to the children in those schools, and they didn't end up in better schools. So we've been through a period of purposeful disruption and chaos, a race to the top inflicted on the schools, the idea that teachers should be evaluated by the test scores of their students, and that's been a total failure. Uh, the American Statistical Association said, don't do that, it doesn't work. Uh, it's been tried, the Gates Foundation poured hundreds of millions of dollars into trying it, and the Rand Institute said that didn't work. I think we should stop doing things to schools that don't work and maybe just back off on federal policy and make federal policy fund schools adequately so that kids have the resources and teachers have the resources that they need uh, to, to, to be successful. Uh, the achievement gap is a function of standardized testing. And if anyone says that they know how to, to close the achievement gap, they're not talking about standardized tests because standardized tests are normed on a bell curve and the design of the bell curve is that it never closes. So I would suggest that we should stop the standardized testing. We should use NAEP to find out where we are, to compare states, to compare cities, and do uh, have the test as a kind of a dipstick and not test every child every year. And I think schools are also have been burdened by the immense privatization associated with the charter movement, uh, which I think is beginning to wind down. Uh, I, you know, it, people in the world don't see it, but it's happening. That's, that's an interesting point that I wish we had a lot more time to discuss. Um, so so where, where you are, what you're saying is where we are is we've tried a bunch of things. They haven't worked. They may have made things worse. And what we need to do is focus on proper funding and real equity. Well, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities said that uh, 29 states were spending less now than they were before the 2008 recession that the, our basic policy, especially in the red states, has been tax cuts, funding cuts, less pay for teachers, and that's why we had strikes, because we decided to squeeze public schools, mm -hmm. and, and they paid the price of all of those budget cuts. Thank so you. I think the funding is crucial. Robert, respond. Sure, um, if you look at the last 30 years of, of education reform, I think there have been some victories that have to be acknowledged, and, and to Diane's point, there have been some, some missteps and excesses. Um, I would argue that you are a lot better off uh, being a low-income family of color in, in an urban center today than you were 30 years ago. Uh, the one probable, probable uh, unambiguous victory of the ed reform movement, Diane will disagree, uh, is, is charter schools. There are any number of, of terrific charter schools, which if you are, again, a low-income parent of color in this country, you'd much rather have your child in than not. Um, the, the, there's a moral component to the ed reform movement that I think has been valuable. Um, and I say this as, as, a, as, a, as a teacher. It's become simply unacceptable to hold uh, children of color to lower standards. Uh, that doesn't mean that the implications of that have always worked out well, but it is simply un unacceptable professionally to have an attitude that says, uh, I don't expect as much of these kids. That's a, that's a, very gr that's a great good thing. A and the energy and urgency of it. Um, you know, I'll split the difference with Diane. Uh, despite the fact that I, I sit uh, in, you know, in the reformer chair, I've got a complicated relationship with standardized testing. Uh, I've always described it using Jefferson's line about holding a wolf by the ears. You don't like it, but you can't let go. And what I mean by that is un undeniably there have been 
uh, some bad effects of it. I mean, you know, everything that I do, I look at the classroom experience of, of, of kids, and it's simply implausible to deny that we don't have what I would call a testing culture, where, where the, the testing tail is wagging the schooling dog, and that is, that is not a good thing, and that needs to be, to be brought back. Um, you know, it encourages bad practice, uh, as it were. But there's always a but because this is complicated, and we need to get com uh, get comfortable with with complication here. Uh, the data from testing is essential. So one of the reasons I've been somewhat critical of the excessive testing culture is because I don't want to lose that data. Because if you lose the data, then you lose the moral authority. You're no longer aware of the achievement gap. You can go go back to pretending that the kids are just fine when the data tells you differently. Uh, but but uh, that, that is not the same thing as as using these instruments uh, for the purpose of of improving the data. That's that's where we've left the rails somewhat. So actually, I think you don't agree on a number of things. <laughs> um, uh, actually, the, 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 the usefulness of tests, the way that uh, presumably the, the way that you are you are suggesting that many of them uh, provide valuable data. Well, not when not when they are materially affecting instruction. Those of us who are my age, um, I'm sure there's at least two or three. Um, <laughs> probably remember we had tests when we were in school. I would go to school, well, what are you doing today? Oh, you're taking this, the Stanford 10 or whatever. Oh, great, where's my pencil? It, it, there was not this, this testing culture that I keep describing where you spend months preparing for them. Right. And once you've done that, then the, then the tests certainly do lose some of their value. I took one of those in second grade. They said I had the intellectual ability of a monkey. So I'm not really, uh, you know, I, I do wonder about how some of them are, um, are drawn up. Let's let's go over to the dean. Um, you've heard you've heard two different, yes. several different ideas from your perch. Yes. Where are we? Does that do people? Right. Is there yeah. any common ground? You know, I think the story is is complicated. It's not all bad. It's not all good. What we have to do is look at the evidence. Um, I think what Diane is saying is pointing out perhaps taking the policy too far, testing every year. But we do need tests at some points because we have to understand how students are doing. I think the one good thing out of No Child Left Behind was really being able to document that even in so-called good schools, you had populations that were struggling, who were being ignored. And we have to get to a point where we are supporting each and every child to succeed. I think the, the complication with education, and particularly with all the demographic change that is going on, the differences that we see uh, geographically, is what works for whom in what context. And the difficulty is saying, you know, all charters are bad or all vouchers are good or, or one or the other, uh, that there have been numerous experiences across the country. What's the right balance? Can we have choice while still having oversight? Can we have autonomy while still having accountability? If we're going to give parents choice, and we do it in a way where low-income parents don't actually have real agency to make good choices on their behalf, then we're going to end up with a failed system. So what do we need to support families, to support students in different kinds of systems? But we have the great advantage of lots of different places trying lots of different iterations of different policies. And quite frankly, we can't tell families, just wait. Give us another five years and schools are going to be better. Amen. Imagine, you know, you have a five-year-old child and we're saying, wait five years till we figure this out. We need innovation. We need experimentation. But we also have to do that cautiously by looking at evidence and adjusting along the way. And I worry when we go too far, you know, all reform, all testing to no testing, the, 
the truth is somewhere in the middle. It's the balance of the two, and we have to do the research. We have to talk to the parents. We have to engage families to actually understand what is working for whom, realizing it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. I, when we talk about debate, I, I think sometimes we can't even agree exactly on, on terminology. Um, for example, I don't know where in the debate anybody has said no testing. I think the debate has been on what to do with tests, what kind of tests, how many tests, who gets the tests. Those are the exact right questions. Yes. Right. That's, but the way, if you listen to debates, what it is is they don't want testing. They want all testing. So, so to, to, to define the debate, you have to have the right questions. I'd like Diane to uh, respond to what you've heard from both of our other panelists. Well, to begin with, uh, I'm not opposed to testing. I think that the best people who administer tests are the teachers because they know what they've taught. I think that teaching to a standardized test is a futile exercise because you end up, as so many schools today do, using weeks, if not months, out of the school year preparing to take tests, spending millions on millions of dollars on interim t assessments and more tests, preparing because the test is so consequential. And then when the test results come in, it's six months after the kids took the test, they don't have the same teacher anymore. A test should only be used for diagnostic purposes, and the tests we use today are totally not diagnostic because the results come in too late, and when they do come in, the teachers are not allowed to see what individual children do and don't know, so they're useless. We have a useless, very expensive testing regime that takes time away from the arts, civics, history, science, that's not education. This, this is why people leave public schools because they get sick of so much testing. As for the charter movement, I think that it's, I think it's a hoax. Uh, and I'm, I know that Robert will disagree with me. Uh, <laughs> but if you look at Detroit, Detroit, half the schools in Detroit are charter schools. Most of them are for-profit charter schools. It's the lowest performing district in the country. If you look at Milwaukee, Milwaukee for 25 years has had choice. They have a public sector, a charter sector, a voucher sector. They're all about the same size. They all do terribly. They, the black children in Milwaukee test at about the same level as black children in Mississippi and Alabama. And, it, and choice has not improved the situation. So I think that we, instead of funding, we, the, the red state governors have said, let them eat choice. Uh, and I don't think that's a good answer. I think that to be a great education system, we should have high standards. We should have diagnostic testing. We should have excellent teachers who are well prepared for the job that they do. We should, have we should value our experienced teachers. Teachers should be paid as professionals. Every school should have a balanced curriculum that includes all the things that are now left out, including the arts, including physical education, including frequent recesses. And I think that we have a federal policy that has driven schools in the wrong direction towards more testing, towards depersonalized learning on computers instead of uh, with the teacher. And we have devalued the key link in education, which is having teachers who are respected and well compensated. Thank you. I think we should uh, raise the issue of Betsy DeVos. And what I'd like each of you to do uh, is just quickly say how you think she has helped or hurt the school reform debate in the country. <laughs> Dee Long? 
So I, I think Secretary DeVos has made statements and pushed education in certain ways that has asked the rest of us to take a stand and, and what do we really believe? What are the facts? What is the evidence? What should we continue doing and what should we change? I can't comment so much on you know what her agenda is right. because I think right. there are many pieces that she she hasn't commented on. Um, I think you know as a scholar who's focused a lot on college access and success, I think one thing she has discovered is she has a very large student loan portfolio to manage, and that that's a very big part of what the Department of Education does. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing to support students who are trying to better themselves um, by going to get additional education? Um, I think that's one area that deserves a, a, a lot more attention and has sparked a lot of debate. Um, but I, you know, I think the policies and the statements that are being put out are asking all of us as institutions, as educators, as uh, private citizens, what do we think the role of the Department of Education should be? Um, mm -hmm. We have two very different you know, departments of education in the last several years, so we're seeing stark contrast in what, what it can be. Right. Robert. I, I tend to focus on practice, so mm -hmm. I think a lot of that tends to be beyond the reach of the Department of Education generally and, and DeVos specifically. I, the, the one thing I will say, this is anecdotal, is it's been interesting to see her effect within the ed reform movement, such as it is, um, because of, uh, well, we'll put it this way, there, there are any number of folks in, who are ed reformers who I think have revealed themselves to be ed reformers second and partisans first. Uh, what I mean by that is I liked choice and charters just fine before Secretary DeVos. I still like them just fine, and I don't like them any less because she, she likes them. Mm -hmm. Diane? Well, I, I think she's played a useful role, a damaging role and a useful role. The damaging role is she wants to roll back civil rights protections. The damaging role is she wants to protect uh, the colleges that prey upon students rather than the students that are preyed upon. Uh, I think that what she's done in terms of civil rights is a monstrosity. Where she has been valuable, however, is that she has sharpened the debate over choice because she has been advocating for vouchers and charters for 30 years. Her record is not unknown. She's not an unknown quantity. Uh, I just read a report, which I urge you all to Google, comes from a group called Integrity Florida, char uh, the hidden cost of charter schools. And look at the millions of dollars that the right wing poured into charters and vouchers in Florida, particularly charters. Uh, it's the DeVos family, it's the Walton family, it's the Koch brothers, it's everybody who's on the, the top hit parade of the right wing. They want to destroy public education. There's no question about this. Uh, she put a, a voucher agenda, she and her husband did, in Michigan in the year 2000, and the voters in Michigan overwhelmingly rejected it. Uh, Michigan, by the way, has gone whole hog for choice, although they don't have vouchers, but they've gone whole hog for charters. Eighty percent of the charters in Michigan are for profit. And Michigan, over these past 15 years, has gone from the middle of the pack on NAEP to the very bottom. I think they're 43rd in the nation on NAEP. So its choice has been disastrous for that state. But I think that she sharpened the debate because she's made it clear that there is a right-wing agenda and she's the, she's the point of the spear. Yeah, okay, may well, I just say, I, I don't think it's a right-wing agenda. I think it's a moral agenda. And, and I say this as somebody who taught in the South Bronx for five years, has been in and out of inner city classrooms ever since then. You know, let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, you, we both sent our children to private school. Uh, if you are an affluent white American, you have virtually unfettered choice in this country. Whether it's by opting out of the system, by moving to the suburbs, you have choice. 
Uh, it, it offends me, frankly, that the students that I taught do not have that. That it's it's a classic case of choice for me, but not for thee. Well, uh, that is a moral Robert, problem. Right? No, I understand. Okay, my grandchildren go to public school if that matters. Um, but I think that the other thing about choices, we're giving children choices that are not good choices because they're, they're, many of these charter schools close, hundreds of them close every year. Oh, sure, but that's why I focus on practice in my work because we can improve the practice. But also be clear, choice in Michigan looks very different than choice in the Boston area. Sure. There's free choice without any kind of accountability, any kind of transparency, any kind of checks versus choice, where it's public money, there's public oversight, there's accountability, um, and there are supports to actually help empower parents to have real agency in choice. Choice is not choice. We have to be much more specific about what kind of policies are we talking about. It doesn't look the same everywhere. But interestingly enough, Massachusetts voters just, I think, voted not to expand charters as, as, as well as... as well, that's because we made this, it I think this is one of the difficulties, because it's hard to tell a complicated, nuanced no, I story no, I and, a, and a political debate. So, okay, we have uh, 45 seconds. <laughs> uh, really, really quick, one-word answers. Yes. Okay, Betsy DeVos says the public education system in America is broken. Is it? Yes or no? Under No Child Left Behind a Race to one the Top. One word. Yes. Not exactly. Two words. There's hope. Okay, one other thing. We have 25 seconds. Who do you want to be education secretary? I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to say John White, the state, state superintendent of Louisiana. Okay. okay. Someone who has been a real classroom teacher with experience, not Teach for America. Put me in, coach. <laughs> with that, thank you. We have run out of time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.